Um, but this is the sermon text for today. And if you've been with us the past few weeks, you know, Nathan has been preaching from the New Testament about Christ at Christmas. Um, and this week, uh, the lesson comes from Philippians 1, 19 through 26. Follow along and I'll read it for us. Yes, and I will rejoice for I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Our holy and eternal Father, it is... Because of this good news that Jesus saves, that we bring these gifts, these tithes, and these offerings before you. Father, you have blessed us mightily in Jesus Christ. You have given us life through Jesus. And so it's out of gratitude that we bring these gifts before you and ask that you would use them in this world in order that your gospel would be proclaimed to all the nations. And in order that your kingdom would be advanced here upon this earth. And Father, as we pray that your kingdom would be advanced and that your gospel would be proclaimed throughout all the earth, we, we pray that your gospel would also be proclaimed to us this morning as we prepare to approach your word. And Father, no matter how we come this morning, heavily burdened or anxious or seeking or doubting or full of faith, Father, we pray that you would help us to see and understand this morning that we really are all the same. Because the truth is that we are all far more broken than we could even imagine. And so we all stand in need of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. In need of his person and in need of his work. To know that though we are far more broken than we could imagine. Our holy and eternal father, it is. Our holy and eternal father, it is joy this morning. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. And at this time, we'll dismiss the children, children ages three through six, uh, to Children's Church. So you can make your way to the back of the sanctuary at this time. What we've been doing together in the weeks leading up to Christmas this year is uh, we've been talking about the hope and promise of Christmas. Uh, God sent his son Jesus into the world, but what what does that mean for us practically and really? And you know what what promise did Jesus come to fulfill? And so we've considered together the hope and promise of rest, the hope and promise of satisfaction, the hope and promise of peace. And this morning we're looking at this passage in Philippians, uh, as Jerry uh, pointed out this morning, that is not exactly your typical Christmas passage, but we'll get to Christmas, I promise. But we're going to look at this passage to consider together this morning the hope and promise of joy. Uh, 
Years ago, I heard someone explaining uh, the beginning stages of building a skyscraper in a big city. And this person explaining this, um, he had come from a family that was involved in the steel business. And companies would use them uh, to purchase these gigantic steel beams for which they used to help build their skyscrapers. And so he was explaining these beginning stages from that vantage point. And so if you think about uh, the building that goes in, into building one of these giant skyscrapers, you, you know, you think before there's ever really a nail put in place, before anyone does any work on the flooring or putting up walls and windows and that kind of stuff, before any of that happens, they are busy working on the foundation, right? And, and of course, that makes sense. It's the first and most important thing that gets done when constructing these huge buildings. And this guy was saying that our holy and eternal Father, it is a humongous hole in the ground where the skyscraper will eventually be. And, and this is the key. Before they ever start building the skyscraper high up into the sky, they begin by digging deep, deep down into the earth, right? And so he was saying if you were to look into this hole, you would see that it's several stories deep. And depending on how tall that skyscraper is going to be, it might be hundreds and hundreds of feet deep. And in fact, many times he was saying that sometimes the foundation is sunk as deeply into the ground as high as the skyscraper will end up being in the, in the sky. And, and I don't know anything about building skyscrapers, really, but I'm just taking this man's word for it. But it it certainly does help me understand why these skyscrapers don't just tip over on a windy day or if a big storm comes through, why they don't topple over. It's because the foundation is so very, very deep in the ground, right? Um, It's because of the security that that deep foundation provides. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the context of the letter uh, that Paul wrote to the Philippians. Um, It's really, it's written by the Apostle Paul, and Paul is writing this letter from jail, from prison. He's chained up. And so, you know, if at the front end we could at least be a little bit honest and say this is one of those places that the Bible seems strange, and the characters in the Bible seem strange to us, because this man is in prison. He is chained to a Roman guard 24 hours a day, right? And he's talking here about how he cannot stop rejoicing. Yes, and I will keep on rejoicing, right? And on the surface, you might be tempted to think, you know, this is what's wrong with Christianity and what's wrong with Christians. You know, it seems to ignore reality or they seem to ignore reality, painful reality, But what we find Paul saying here in this passage is that that if you want to understand why, even in chains, he keeps on rejoicing. He's saying to us, you need to stop looking at at what's happening above the ground and look beneath the surface at the foundation in my life, right? The deep, solid foundation is what provides the security and the reason for rejoicing no matter what's happening above ground. You know, the Christmas season is supposed to be this very, very happy time of year, right? Um, And it is. But for many of us, a lot of us, we smile on the outside, but the Christmas season also brings 
a lot of pain to the surface of our lives, right? You know, yay, we get to be with family. And then, ugh, we got to be with family. Um, you know, I mean, somehow we forget how dysfunctional and broken and messed up our families are. And we get reminded at Christmas season, right? Um, you know, for some, some of you, maybe even more seriously, that this season triggers the sorrow of really, really painful loss in your life and disappointment and loneliness. And for others of you, it might not be so much that the Christmas season itself is triggering pain, painful memories or anything like that, but your life is crumbling right now, right? It's falling apart. You know, there's discord in your relationships. There's difficult and complicated brokenness running all throughout your life, right? The uncertainty that's in your careers or, or, or maybe the unsettled family life that you have, trouble with kids or trouble in your marriage or, or whatever, wrestling with the consequences of maybe your sin or maybe the sins of others. I mean, sometimes it feels like you're standing on the outside of your very own life watching it all crumble beneath you, right? But then on the complete other side, right, there are some of you who are experiencing the exact opposite, right? And you're thinking right now, even as I'm talking about these things, you're thinking, I don't know what he's talking about because my life is fine. In fact, it's great. Things have never been better, right? Everything's good. And, and you start thinking, well, this, is, this isn't going to have anything to do with me today. Um, but just maybe, for those of you that are in that situation, this passage is most important for you. Because, you know, you have to ask yourself this question. Is your happiness in this life, is it really deep? Or is it just fragile and thin and vulnerable based on the circumstances in your life, right? See, here's what I want you to understand this morning. Real deep joy in this life it isn't based on what's happening above the ground, the circumstances of your life, whether they are good or bad, whether it's raining or shining, right? Real joy comes when your life is built on an unshakable, sure, solid, and deep foundation. So much so that it cannot be affected. It can't even be touched by the circumstances of your life, whether they're good or bad. So I want to try and show you this by talking through these three points together this morning. They're on your insert. Real joy comes from what you know, from what you expect, and from what defines you. So first, let's think about this, this first point, what you know. Joy is based on what you know, no matter what your circumstances are, right? Look at verse 19. <clears throat> yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, when you first read that verse or when you first hear that verse, it sounds like Paul is saying... I know that I'm about to get out of jail. They're about to come unlock these chains, and I'm about to be free, and so I'm rejoicing. Okay, that's what it sounds like at first. But I want to convince you this morning that that isn't at all what Paul is saying here. In the translation that I use, the, the last word in this verse is deliverance, right? We'll turn out for my deliverance. But that word that's translated deliverance, it's actually the Greek word for salvation all over the New Testament. And when you read that verse with the word salvation in it instead of deliverance, you realize that Paul isn't really talking about getting out of jail. He is saying something entirely different. And if you can stay with me just for a second, I'll try to help you uh, help explain this to you. The Bible uses the word salvation. The Bible uses the word salvation in several different senses, right? 
Sometimes the Bible picks up that word uh, salvation to talk about something in the past, right? That we were saved, that we were saved from our sins when we believed in Jesus, right? But sometimes the Bible takes that same word and he uses it to talk about the future, right? That one day we will be saved. That is, we will be brought home to be with Jesus and salvation will be complete in us. And listen, and this is important, and sometimes the Bible uses that word salvation to talk about the present, your growth, right, in the Christian life. We are being saved, right? That, that is, we are growing and changing and becoming the kind of people God meant us to be. And that's the way we actually see the word used just a few verses later in chapter 2, in verse 12, when Paul says, work out your salvation, It's present. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And I'm saying that's the way that Paul is using this word here in this passage. Salvation in the sense of growing and changing. So if I haven't made this even more confusing, this is what Paul is saying. He is saying, I have every reason to rejoice and to continue rejoicing because I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that what has happened to me here is going to be used in my life to change me and make me more and more into the man God meant me to be. God is using this, he is saying, to change me, to mature me, to mold me and shape me and conform me into the image of Jesus to make me beautiful, right? He is saying right now, God is using chains to do that in my life. Consider what you know. Consider what you know in the midst of your pain and your suffering, and your trials, and your struggles, that God uses all things for good, even if you can't see it at the moment, right? That God is making you into a man or woman that is more loving, less self-centered, that he's taking away from you the lust and the greed that dominates your life, or whatever else it is. The The reason even our pain can be turned into the light is because we know that God is at work in his people, right? Most of us We are so busy. We have busied ourselves completely in our lives. And all we're trying to do so much of the time is trying to avoid pain and run from hurt and escape hardness, right? But what would it be like to live with this kind of confidence, right? That even in and during the most difficult points of your life, that you you know that you are going to meet the goodness of God, that he is at work molding and shaping you. What would it be like to live with an awareness that even when it seems to be nothing but chaos in your life and when it seems like your world is crumbling around you, that God is actually using that all to make you into something beautiful? Paul would say, that looks like rejoicing in my life. Because no matter what happens, I know that God is at work changing and transforming me. In the Middle Ages, uh, people were looking for a way to turn lead into gold, right? And they called this process alchemy, right? And you see, they thought that lead was this useless, worthless substance. And so they wanted to take this worthless, useless substance, right? And and turn it into something good, into something beautiful, into something useful. Good idea, but obviously it didn't work, right? Um, You can't turn lead into gold, can you? Well, Paul is saying this. He is saying, this is what I know. God can and God does turn lead into gold. 
That is what he does with his people, right? I rejoice, Paul is saying, because I know that in the midst of this, God is turning me from lead into gold. And often God uses the fire of trials in our lives to do just that. You know, one of the bigger questions that we ask in our lives are why questions, right? And you ask them in the midst of your suffering and in the midst of your pain. And you ask, why is this or that happening to me? Why would God allow this to come into my life? And those are big questions and those are hard questions and those are good questions. And the answer is found in what we know. God is using even the hardness of life to turn his people into something beautiful. Shaping them and molding them into the image of Jesus. You know, the famous preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones, this is where I'm getting this illustration from. He called this, this process, the divine alchemy, right? God loves turning lead into gold, and he does it all the time. Now, second, let's turn from what you know, and we'll consider the second thing, what you expect. Real joy is also built on your expectations. Verse 20, he writes, As it is my eager expectation and hope, that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Now, you know, when we read those words, you know, ex- eager expectation and hope, what we are seeing in this passage is extreme confidence, right? The Bible uses those words, expectation and hope, in a different way than you and I often use them in day-to-day life, Right? especially this word hope. I mean, most often we use that word to express our wishes, right? And and so, you know, exams at school are over and it's Christmas break and all that kind of stuff. And you're thinking, I really, really hope I pass chemistry this semester, right? And and I will tell you, or algebra or whatever, whatever it is for you. And I'm telling you that those words do not instill extreme confidence in parents, right? When they hear, I hope I pass chemistry. Um, End of the year, you know, a lot of you are hoping for a Christmas bonus, right? You're hoping for it. And you're hoping it's not going to be a Jello of the Month thing like Clark Griswold got right in Christmas Vacation. I think that's what it was. But anyway, you know, plenty more examples we could throw out, right? But my simple point is that this is not how the Bible uses those words in the way we use it. When the Bible talks about eager expectation and hope, it's talking about absolute certainty. So certain that it's as good as done, right? See, Paul is saying that we can rejoice no matter the circumstances in our life because one thing is absolutely written in stone, unchangeably certain, and it's this, whether by life or death, Jesus will glorify himself through his people. You see, this is the heart of verse 20. The focus is not on Paul, and the focus isn't on you and me. The reason there is absolute confidence and certainty in what we expect is because the focus is entirely upon Jesus. The reason there will be no shame, the reason there will be sufficient courage is because Jesus is going to glorify himself through us no matter what. And you know, a constant temptation that you and I face, even as Christians, is that we want the glory, right? We want to be noticed for our achievements, Right. We start to feel like we deserve some attention because of who we are. And you even find yourself tempted to take credit for what God has done in your life. Right. I almost cringe when I go somewhere and I hear that somebody's going to be getting up on the stage to share their Christian testimony. I think it's a beautiful thing, wonderful thing that people do that. But so often what you hear in that is is just this. I used to be bad and now I'm good. And it's all about me. 
It's all, it's all about who I am. We tend to crave the spotlight and the recognition. But here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, I fade away into the background because whatever happens to me, it is Jesus who brings glory to himself through me. And this is why I rejoice. You see, Paul sees himself very differently than the way we tend to see ourselves. He sees that this grand story of redemption and even the story of his life is not ultimately about him. This grand story of redemption is about the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is what the gospel does. The gospel invites you into something bigger than yourself. Right? Your life and my life, it isn't a testimony to our faithfulness and our achievements. It's a testimony to the faithfulness and the achievements of the Lord Jesus Christ. That he would lift us from the dust and display us as the trophies of his grace. You know, I was sitting in my office and I was trying to figure out how to illustrate this for you. And really, I kept thinking about what Paul says when he writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Let let me just read you three verses real quick. He writes this, for we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts and to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And he writes this. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. This is what I mean when I say that Paul sees himself differently than the way we tend to see ourselves. Because he calls himself an ordinary jar of clay. Right, Not a beautiful vase with intricate designs and markings and all that kind of stuff, but a jar of clay. And the thing that makes that jar of clay worth anything at all is the treasure inside that jar, right? And he is saying that treasure is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he makes the glory of the gospel shine all the brighter by placing it in ordinary jars of clay. If you want to know how to continue to rejoice no matter what, you have to start seeing yourselves. As jars of clay. You know, I wonder if you've ever thought, because I've thought it, why didn't Jesus just take away all this sin when I became a Christian? Why didn't he just take it away? You know, why didn't he take away all your broken tendencies and all your twisted motives when you became a Christian? Why do I keep failing at the same old things? Why won't Christianity make my kids well behaved, right? Why is it that the Christian life seems to be defined by struggle? Why can it be instantaneous instead of being defined by this struggle? I will tell you at least one reason. One reason is so that you and I will never be able to forget that we are jars of clay. It is so that you and I will grow to expect that God shows his power, not in our strength, but in our weakness. And he displays his glory in all our deformities. And I'm telling you, when that truth sinks in, it's not just joyful, but it's unbelievably freeing to know that this treasure is placed in jars of clay. Okay, finally, real joy comes from what defines you. You know, sometimes it's hard uh, just invite you into my life for a second. Sometimes it's really hard to know how to structure a sermon. Um, And this is the case with this passage. But listen, if you've had a hard time paying attention so far, please listen to this last point. Because truthfully, what we know and what we expect, they grow out of what defines us. Okay, I don't want you to take this the wrong way. But because you could take it the wrong way and think that I'm really, really morbid. (laughs) Um, Because 
I know it sounds terrible when you say it out loud, but every once in a while I catch myself thinking, what would I do if my wife Jennifer died? And it sounds terrible to say it out loud, but I'm thinking, how would I handle it? And the reason that that's an important question for me is that I can see the temptation in my life to define my life by her, right? I love her, and the temptation for me is to say that she is what completes me, that she is what makes my life valuable. Would I be destroyed if she were taken from me? That's the question that I'm asking. And so my question for you is, what is your bottom line? I'm telling you what my bottom line is. What is it that makes life worth living for you? What is it that defines you? I mean, for some of you, it might be pleasure, right? Or comfort. The one thing that matters is whether or not uh, you feel good and whether or not you're comfortable. Only then do you know that you're secure and feel secure in this life. Is it your friends? You know, as long as you have friends and they like you and they're happy with you, then, then your world is fine, right? Or is it your, your marriage? Or maybe even if it's not your marriage, maybe it's the hope of marriage for some of you, right? And you think, as long as I get married one day, I'll be happy, right? Or maybe it's your career. As long as I'm successful and I gain the respect of my peers, <clears throat> then I'll know I'm significant in this life. Or maybe it's your status, you know, and you're so scared that you'll lose your position or your place. Or maybe your bottom line has a religious ring to it, right? And you think, good morals, right? No blemishes on your record. If I'm good, then I know. Then I know I have value in this life. And here's what I want you to see. that I want you to see that those are not small questions. Those questions are huge. They're bottom line questions because they are asking you, what is life to you? What is life? Now, here's how Paul defined his life in verse 21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He is saying here, he's saying my career isn't my life. Right. My friends aren't my life. Pleasure and morals and race and achievements, they aren't my life. Jesus is everything to him, he is saying. And this is, this is what he's really saying. He's saying you can take away his career and you can throw him in jail, right? You can beat him, you can put him in shackles. And he says, you can take it all away from me and you haven't even come close to touching my life. Right? My life is defined by something that no one and nothing in this life can touch. No circumstance can get at my life. In Christ. And this is why he can go on to say that even death is to his advantage. To die is gain. You begin to get this picture in your mind, right? Of how Paul, he holds the things of this life with such a loose grip. Because he is grabbing so tightly to the Lord Jesus Christ. That all his strength is spent on holding on to Jesus. This is how Paul, later in Philippians, he puts it in chapter 3. He says, what is more I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. So what is your bottom line? Right. What defines you? According to the Bible, there's only one definition that works. There's only one definition that can give you joy, no matter the circumstances in your life. Right. No matter what's happening above ground. And that bottom line is the Lord Jesus Christ. Bit of sad news here. This past summer, <clears throat> our family dog died. Um, and many of you know how I ha enjoy talking about my dog. Um, but she was, uh, 
She was a chocolate lab, right? A retriever. Very simple animal. Uh, but those animals, if you know anything about labs, they're, just, they're bred to retrieve. It's in their blood. It's in their DNA. I mean, it, it's something that she couldn't help, really. If you threw something, she was going to go get it. She just, it clicks in. It's instinct, right? Um, when that dog was in the back of our car, and we were heading to the lake, right? And we were going to go play fetch at the lake, and I was going to throw the ball out in the water for her. She would, in the back seat, she would be whining and crying because she knew where we were going. And she would be bouncing from door to door in the back seat, right? So excited about where we were going. And I don't know if you know this about labs, but you can, you can literally kill a lab by playing fetch with it, right? That's how instinctive playing fetch is for these dogs. They're retrievers. It's in their blood. They can't help it, right? It's not an exaggeration. I mean, retrieving is so in the blood, such an essential part of their identity that they will chase that stick or that ball until they overheat and die. Or they'll chase it out into the water until they can't swim anymore and they drown, right? That dog was consumed by retrieving, right? Driven, focused. Everything else in life was secondary. To retrieve to find her. This is what it looks like to be defined by something. Everything else, even life itself, is secondary. There is one thing in focus. What Paul says is that Jesus defined him to live as Christ and to die as gain, right? And he's consumed with that passion and driven and focused on Jesus and him alone. Listen, if you're crushed, if you're crushed by your friendships... I know you think you need new friends. You don't need new friends. You need a new definition for your life. If you find yourself in despair because of broken relationships, right? And there's a difference between sadness and despair. But if you're despairing, you don't need new relationships. You need a new definition of life, right? If you're filled with anxiety that you won't be able to climb the ladder high enough, you don't need a new career, You need a new definition. If you find yourself riddled with guilt because you realize that you cannot live up to your own set of moral standards, you don't need a new set of standards. You need a new definition for life. If you want deep joy, no matter what the circumstances are, you will have to define your life with Christ so that rain or shine, right? The storms can do their best, but will be unable to topple you and steal your joy if your life is built on Jesus. Now, okay, so here it is, Christmas. This is what it all has to do with Christmas. In the Gospel of John, in the Gospel of John, John tells us about Jesus' first miracle that he did, right? Some of you probably remember what it was. If you didn't, it was right when Jesus began his public ministry that he went to a wedding. He went to a party, right? A wedding unlike any of the weddings you've been to in our culture, right? It was a huge, week-long party and in festivity. And at that party that Jesus attended, the host of that party ran out of wine. And listen, this was not this was a big deal. It wasn't just like somebody was going to say, oh, boo, party foul, you know, and go on with life. Um, no, like if that happened in this culture, that was significant enough to call off the wedding and the bride and groom would never be married. And it all had to do with the symbolism Of the wine in the wedding. So one rabbi put it like this. Simple statement. Wine 
is the joy of the wedding. Right? Here's what Jesus did. He miraculously, in that, in that situation, they ran out of wine and he turned water into wine. 150 gallons of the finest wine. Right? And John, when he's writing this stuff down for us, he was very careful to record to, uh, for us that this was the first of Jesus' miraculous signs. And you know what a sign is, right? The sign isn't the destination. The sign points you to the destination. When God's Son took on flesh, His very first miracle was a sign that was pointing to Jesus and saying, Jesus took on flesh. He came into this world to do this. To fill your life with joy. Right? And so if you look to Jesus for your definition, what is promised to you is not a happy set of circumstances in your life and well-behaved children and a great career and all this kind of stuff. But what is promised to you is deep, abiding joy. No matter what happens in life. No matter what the circumstances are. And thrown in with this is the promise that those who are defined by Jesus, Jesus will glorify himself through them no matter what. And Jesus will be at work turning you from lead into gold. I'm telling you, it's what he loves to do. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are so unbelievably thankful for your grace. That you sent Jesus into this world in order that in him... We might have joy and a joy that is untouchable by the circumstances of life. Father, we pray that you would indeed cause us this very Christmas season to find our rest in Jesus. To stop grasping for it in our performance, to stop grasping for it in our careers, to stop grasping for it in our relationships, but that we would find the deep rest for which we were made in Jesus, and that it would fill our lives with deep and abiding joy. Father, we pray that you would do this for your glory and for our good, that defining our lives by Christ, that you would indeed turn lead into gold and shape us and mold us into the image of Jesus, in whose name we do pray. Amen.